0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Let's read the first eight verses of chapter 4. It says in verse 1, it says, So I returned... And I actually really love the way that that begins in the chapter, because if you remember our study in chapter 3, Solomon had been on this um, kind of philosopher's kick, and he really kind of had his head in the clouds trying to figure life out, uh, and now he returns. So he comes back down to earth in chapter 4, and it says that he considered now all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they, that is, those that were oppressed, treated unfairly. For them, it says, there was no comforter. Wherefore, because of this, Solomon says, I praised the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. So apparently a big problem in Solomon's mind uh, that, that the people that are uh, uh, victims of this would better, be better off dead. And he says, Yea, better is he than both they which has not yet been, who has not seen evil Or the evil work that is done under the sun. So even the stillborn or people that never existed uh, are better than those that have been the victim of, of injustice in this way that Solomon is speaking of. And so he says, again, I considered all labor and every right work that for this a man is envied by his neighbor. And this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool, three people now in verses five and six, he says, the fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. And then verse six says, better is a handful with quietness. So the second person is one that has one handful. Uh, then the third person, both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And so then he returns again and he said, I saw vanity under the sun. He says, there is one alone And there is not a second; yea, he has neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor? Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither does he say, "For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good?" He said, "This also is vanity; yea, is it it is a sore travail." And so, uh, this person, even the person that has no one to provide for, they've got no brother, they've got no wife they've got no husband, they're just alone in life, even that person is driven uh, to do something that they don't need to do, and Solomon can't figure out why, and he says that this uh, is confusion, it's vexation of spirit. And so, as we come to chapter 4, we come into now kind of this topic of social injustice. Solomon, throughout this book, is searching for the meaning of life. That's what he wants to find the answer to. What is the purpose for man's existence? And he is chronicling his search throughout these chapters and pages. And where he has looked thus far in our study is, first of all, the search for satisfaction by obtaining things or through experiences or self-indulgence. That was chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, he tried a whole other search by looking for sense and meaning in the ebb and flow of times and seasons and chance and trends and culture and communities of people. He looked for purpose somewhere in that, and he came up empty in that search as well. And so now what he's going to look for is meaning in society. Can we figure out... What the meaning of life is by studying societies, by looking at people and the way they interact with each other and kind of their lifespan uh, and all that kind of thing. And so he's looking at that uh, kind of here, but he gets distracted at first glance and he realizes that there's going to be a big problem trying to find purpose here because of this big problem of oppression, of social injustice, of inequality of exploitation of one group of people against another group of people because of some natural advantages or some inherited or assumed advantages that they have. And he sees this thing that ruins his search right here at the upfront at the beginning. I remember in uh, the, the, the kind of the latter half of my teenage years, just leading up to the time that I came to Christ, I was saved when I was 19 years old, about 20 years ago, and um, there were two movies that I saw during that season of my life that really kind of influenced, um, in in a way, kind of in a roundabout way, me coming to Christ. They played a part. They were an ingredient. Um, One of them was The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, uh, where basically this man, his whole life is staged, but he doesn't know it, and he's under surveillance constantly, and the whole world is kind of tuning in. So there's the, kind of this secret audience that's seeing his staged, framed, and planned life, and kind of watching it live out in real time. And I remember watching that and just being so upset by it because there was something that resonated that just felt so unfair, but it felt so relatable for some reason. Like that that was kind of all of us. And it bothered me. It really troubled me. The other one was called Enemy of the State. Now, I'm not... I was unsaved when I saw these movies, and I don't remember all the little details. So please don't go, Pastor Nick said, you know, because I don't, you might, you know, go watch those and be like, oh, mercy. Like, I heard about this in church. I'm not endorsing, I'm testifying. Like, this was my story, you know. So I saw Enemy of the State with Will Smith, and, and, in, and in that story, and it was just a story, this man had offended the powers that be and they use all of their technological Uh, ability to track this guy down and if it wasn't for the fact that he himself was elitely trained and knew some of these secrets and systems then he barely could elude their their trying to capture and kill him for whatever unjust thing he had done you know and all that kind of escaped me but i remember seeing that movie and i was very troubled by it and I, i could watch jaws i could watch horror flicks i could watch blood and guts none of that bothered me but those two films bothered me Because there was something in them that made me feel so oppressed. It awoke something in me that made me feel like I was under someone's thumb. There was something about it where when I saw those films, it made me realize that I was kind of like a slave that had always thought I was free. My whole life I thought I was free, but I realized that there's more going on that I can't see and that somewhere in all of that I'm a slave to it. And I believe now looking back at it that part of it was the spirit of God making me aware of that, you know, coming to that age of realizing that there's more going on in the world than just me, you know. And and, and somehow that experience, coupled with all the other things God was doing to draw me to himself, it led me to need freedom, to cry out for something that was beyond myself because I wanted to be free. I needed to be free. And what Solomon is saying to us here in his search for meaning of life under the sun in this world, on this planet, is that there is an oppression that exists amongst men that is horrible there's an injustice there's an inequality an unfairness of life that you and i are subject to and that is absolutely inescapable and that has the ability to oppress us and bring us to a point where we could wish that we would rather be dead than alive where we could say, I would rather be amongst those that were miscarried and that never saw the light of day than have to feel the oppression and the inequalities and the unfairness that this life brings. And there is an intense problem in this world when it comes to this subject of social injustices or social inequalities. And this issue has deep emotional roots because every one of us is affected by it in some way. We turn on the news and we see the riots in France, people revolting because of the oppression of governments for unfair taxation and and those representative issues. We hear constantly of issues uh, of people upset, people wounded, people protesting because of issues of gender inequality. We hear often these days about the Me Too movement. We know that the things that drive the political divides, that cause people to divide into parties politically and and to rally around certain issues, that all of that has to do with issues in this realm of inequality and injustice. And it goes from those large-scale applications to even the local things of the schoolyard bully or people that we know in our life or that we work alongside or that we can relate with one-on-one that in some way have advantages over us and those things are then used and wielded as weapons against us and they oppress. And so Solomon brings this up and what he does is he begins to pick it apart and in verses 1 through 8, what he does is he tells us two elements about oppression so he's going to just make observations to kind of put things in perspective for us to help us understand this issue and the first thing that he brings before us in the first couple of verses is that this issue of oppression or being oppressed or inequality or unjust behavior that it is seen and felt on the human level now that goes without saying but it must be said nevertheless notice what he says in verse one He says uh, that I returned and considered the oppressions that are done under the sun, and I beheld the tears of such as were uh, oppressed, and he says that they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they, that is the oppressed, had no comforter. And so the existence of inequality amongst men divides itself between those that have power in some particular arena or realm and those that lack that power and the implication is that those that have the power are unjustly treating those that don't have that power and it's very obvious that there's an imbalance of power now oppression comes when that power is exploited and natural gifts or abilities or learned or assumed or inherited gifts and abilities are then leveraged against the people that lack those abilities and then people are treated unfairly on the other side of it and so in our world we can take just about anything we want and we can look at how there's a side that has power and there's a side that has no power so take the issue of race and where you're in a culture where there's one race that most of the time they just basically outnumber those of other races, then that race card can be played and oppression can be applied based upon the fact that one group outnumbers or out uh, uh, um, whatever another group. Um, Take gender, you could have one gender that in certain ways knows how to leverage the power of that gender over the other gender, and oppression can then be exercised one against the other, the power versus the lack of power. Someone that has intelligence, or education, or uh, some intellectual ability that, that maybe is just inherent in them, and they know how to then use their knowledge, or their understanding, or their education... To leverage power against those that are ignorant or uneducated and are vulnerable because they don't know as much. The powerful versus the weak. Also, uh, the issues of opportunity. Some people have opportunities based upon where they're born or the education, again, that they receive or other things. And they can leverage those opportunities that maybe they had nothing to do with. But they have them, nevertheless, and they leverage those against other people, and you have the powerful versus the weak. There are people that have physical strength, like, again, the schoolyard bully. And he can then use that presence and that physical power to leverage weakness or leverage it against the weakness of someone else and, and, and cause, uh, physical oppression. And it goes on and you can literally take anything. Someone who has resources, someone who has a position of power, uh, you know, that they have governmentally or they've been given authority in something or even in the church. And these things can then be used to overpower or overthrow the weak. And it can go on every line. Attractive people. Can we confess and admit that life is easier for attractive people than for non-attractive people? (laughs) It absolutely is. I know that firsthand because I'm married to one, okay? And I have seen it and do see it, that life is easier. In fact, life is easier for people that are married to attractive people. I can attest to that too. I remember uh, uh, last summer they paved our road and it was uh, desperately in need of it. And as they were doing it, they were kind of at that stage where they were um, putting in the, like, the little transitions between the new road and people's driveways. And we have this big problem with our driveway. It's unpaved and it's downhill. So it kind of becomes like a natural creek bed. And, and so like, you know they were doing this thing and I said to Georgia, I said, hey, could you just do me a favor? <laughs> And I said this, I said, put on those shorts, and would you please go up there and ask them if they would make it when they're doing it so that the water runs down the side of to the side of the driveway and not right down the driveway. And she did it. And they did it. And they did such a nice job. They spent a long time, like half a day, on the transition between my dirt driveway and the road... Right there. And I was just like, thank you, Lord. You know, (laughs) I'm so glad. You know, this has helped my erosion problem in an immense way, you know. But the bottom line is this, is that in the realms of men, we have learned to leverage the advantages that we have, and we use them for our own favor and sometimes to the expense of someone else, and sometimes to the causing of pain. And we see this happen, and Solomon's assessment of it is he says that with the oppressor, there is power, but with the oppressed, there is no help. And the idea there isn't that people aren't willing to help, it's that they can't help. It's that those that have power are too powerful for those that have no powerful. And thus Solomon's assessment is that it's better to be dead than to be unfree and enslaved in this way. And it's amazing how every single one of us in this room can relate to that on some level, at least in some time of our life or a part of our journey, what that feels like, to where we are being oppressed in some way. I mean, how many times have we seen someone in a position that we would like to have, and we know deep down inside that we have everything and more than what it takes to operate in that position. And yet, for some reason, we just can't get there. No matter what, there's just some, some barrier that keeps us from crossing over into that place that we know that we would thrive in, that we would do well in. And, and, and we feel it in so many different ways. Maybe you've been the, you know, the victim of the race card or the gender card at some point in your life or the income inequality card, and you felt it. I remember uh, one time driving down the Springbrook Parkway, down where the golf course is there, uh, you know, once you're crossing over into Yonkers. And I just remember seeing the guys driving up in their Porsches in the weekday morning in the summertime with the top down, pulling up their golf clubs. And I'm driving my Honda Civic that's going, you know, and just going, oh, you know, and just actually feeling the unfairness of uh being in that situation and it's something that every one of us is absolutely familiar with and so solomon tells us he very obviously that this issue is seen and felt on the human level but then he goes a little bit further and this is what we need to hear is that this issue of social injustice and human inequality is driven by a deeper more sinister source it comes from the origin of these oppressions comes from a deeper place than just the natural realm. First, he tells us in verse four that it exists deep within man himself. Notice what he says in verse four. He says, again, I considered all labor. That means every work that people do and every right work or every achievement, every good achievement, everything that people do with nobility. And he says, here's what drives those things. He says that for this, a man is envied by his neighbor. And this also is vanity and vexation. Now, in the NIV, it says it this way, and it brings clarity to what Solomon's trying to say. It says this. It says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement sprang from one person's envy of another. In other words, everything that motivates human beings to achieve and to work and to obtain, even righteously, is driven in some way by how it's going to make them feel measuring up against other human beings. Sometimes it's motivated by trying to reach A level that someone else has already reached and sometimes it's motivated by trying to make people want to reach a level that you have reached but Solomon says I considered that all labor and all achievement comes from this source this envying of one and another And each of us has seen this in it. Now, Solomon then describes three people that we saw in verses five and six. The first one is the one who folds his hands together. And the idea behind that person is that they have two hands empty. They're not striving after anything. This person is the one who is completely dependent on the system and thus in the process he calls them a fool because in their dependence upon the system they're enabling the system and they're feeding the oppression of the system that's why he says that he eats his own flesh In the message Bible it actually uses the word commits suicide that the person who just folds their hands in other words they're they're a part of this system that's oppressive and unequal and unfair and they just throw up their hands and they say you know what I'm not playing. I'm taking my hands. I'm taking my talents. I'm taking whatever I could contribute to society, and I'm going to my house, and I'm going to collect unemployment. I'm going to fold my hands. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to live off the government. It ain't worth it anyways. He says that person is committing suicide in a sense that they have given over to the oppression, and they are still feeling it. They're not free of this System, even though they're seeking to be free. The second person that he mentions is the person who has one handful, and that's the person that is the wise person in this. And we'll come back to that later on, because that's where we want to find ourselves if we can get there. And then the third person that he mentions is the one who has two hands full. And the idea behind that person is that they have traded... The freedom of at least having one hand free to try to give themselves so totally to becoming something in this world that they become unfree in the process. That they become. The enemy of their own pursuit because they become so consumed with trying to be free that they've actually become slaves maybe not to the system but to their own ideal of becoming something higher than what they are and so those three people solomon observed within this system and he sees that there's something inside of man that feeds this oppressiveness this inequality but then he shows us that it goes even deeper than what's in a man's desire for himself notice in verse 8 he tells us in verse 8 that there is one alone and there is not a second meaning that there's no one to impress and no one to compare yourself with and he has neither child or brother meaning he doesn't even have to provide for anybody And yet there is no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither does he even say to himself, for who do I labor and bereave my soul of good? In other words, that even the man who is not comparing himself to someone else and isn't trying to have anything and has no one to provide for, even that man is not satisfied with what he has and he even is driven in this system that ends and produces oppression now what's the sum of all of these observations it's felt on the human level it's something that exists within man but it's something that's even beyond man because it doesn't make sense even within the man the conclusion is this and it's important for us to understand is that oppression and inequality and social injustice in all of its forms has a source that comes from somewhere else other than man. Now, the Bible tells us what that is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul lets us in on the secret. He says this. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, not human rulers, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, there is a dark operating system that rules the systems that you and I are in submission to and the oppression comes from that source that is deeper even than man. Back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul the Apostle says this in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, And you, has he made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, wherein, verse 2, in time past, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, Jesus tells us who the prince of this system is, who the prince of the power of the air is, when he says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan, the devil himself, that he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So here's where this whole unfair, unequal, oppressive, unjust, exploited system comes from. It comes from Satan, who stole from man his place and his purpose, put in his own operating system and brought humanity under his servitude. And from his place of ruling over the affairs of life in this world, he has created this system that all of us are subject to, And the outcome of it is the oppression, the inequality, and the injustice that we feel on every level, every day of our lives. Satan is the king of oppression. And Satan is the reason why oppression exists, the reason why there's inequality. It's because the world is under his influence. In the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Eve to take of the fruit... And then she gave it to her husband, and together they disobeyed God, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were three things that were forfeited by humanity collectively in the garden. Number one was their innocence. Adam and Eve lost their innocence, and thus all of us are born into this world without our innocence, and thus we have a sense of guilt within us. And so what Satan took from man, first of all, is Satan took man's innocence and made him a slave to his guilt. Now I don't know if you know this or not, but guilt is an extremely powerful motivator and a heavy yoke. is that when someone feels guilt inside, they will do a lot of things to try to get out from under the weight of that guilt, and that guilt is something that Satan leverages in every lost person's life in order to bring them into this oppressed miserable state a second thing that satan stole from man in the garden of eden was his vision when adam and eve were cut off from the garden of eden there was more that happened than just the physical banning from a physical location their eyes were literally blinded to the spiritual realm that had once been open to them for them to see freely Where in the garden there was a communion with heaven and the two were one in a sense. They were linked openly. And Adam could walk with God in the cool of the day and hear his voice clearly and fellowship with angels. Once Adam sinned, those eyes spiritually were blinded and he was cut off and locked into the realm of physicality. The tangible world that you and I relate with. And thus Satan stole his vision and was then able to seed the lie into the heart of humanity that this world is all there is. And when we believe that this world is all there is, then we become slaves to serve in its systems and to try to get whatever we can from it because it's all there ever will be. And thus when Satan took man's vision, he brought him under the slavery of a false purpose. Your existence is to serve this world and serve yourself in this world. And we're cut off from the knowledge that there's anything outside of this world that's bigger than we are. The third thing that Satan took from man in the garden when he sinned and tempted him is that he stole man's freedom. He was cut off from the garden and thus he was enslaved by the world and its systems, by the desires of his flesh, the only place he could find satisfaction and of the devil himself who ruled then from that time on over the kingdoms of men. In Luke chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus, he said to Jesus, the devil did, he said, if you bow down and worship me, then I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world to rule over. And Satan said this, he said, for they have been delivered to me, and I can give them to whoever I want. And Jesus didn't say, yo, sit down you're talking to the son of god jesus didn't argue with satan why because what satan said was absolutely right when man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he forfeited control and dominion over the world into the hand of the prince of darkness and thus the systems of this world that produce the exploiting of the inequalities amongst men that results in the oppression that each of us feel on various levels, all of that is ruled by the king of oppression, that is, Satan himself. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Solomon makes two statements about this condition. The first is in verses 9 through 12, and that is that oppression can and should be resisted. Oppression can and should be resisted. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, for two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he does not have another one to help him up. In other words, there's strength in numbers. If you at least have someone else, you've got a standing chance, but if you fall down when you're on your own, then you're in trouble. He says again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? So two have an exponential ability to produce and to bring something forth. And then he says, And if one prevails against him, two shall withstand him, that is the one who's oppressing, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I read this passage and you say, wait a minute, that was on my wedding invitation. I think that passage has been read at just about every wedding I have ever been to. Where in the world is the man and the wife in this? The context of it, unfortunately, has nothing to do with marriage at all. You know, in fact, sometimes, well, maybe it does fit, right? Marriage, oppression, I don't know. You... <laughs> maybe sometimes, right? But here's the premise that Solomon is kind of bringing forward in all of this He's saying that those that are on the side of the oppressor are always going to be more than the side Or i'm, sorry Those that are on the side of the oppressed are always going to be more than those on the side of the oppressor And if you are divided and alone Then you will be overcome because the power of the oppressor will always be greater than the power of the oppressed But the ability to resist in the place of resistance is found in numbers It's found in unity. That if those that are on the side of the oppressed can unify, then they are then able to stand against and resist the power of that oppression. Which, by the way, is the reason why one of Satan's greatest strategies is to divide people. Because if Satan can polarize people and divide them and scatter them, then it's very easy for him to overcome them. Because by ourselves, we alone are weak. We can't even produce our own heat when we're by ourselves. But when people are unified, there's strength in those numbers. How does a a, a pride of lions attack a vulnerable animal? They'll separate one from the rest of the herd. And once they get him on his own, they can take him out. Now, a lion against even an elephant, the lion wins that battle. But if you have two elephants against one lion, guess what? The, elephant, or the lion knows that he has absolutely no chance against those elephants Because they're unified, they're strength in numbers The same thing is true when it comes to the realm of oppression amongst people Or even in the spiritual realm There's strength in numbers Do you realize how important it is as Christians That we not allow Satan to divide us? We're always going to be a minority in a fallen world And our numbers are always going to be less Than those that are with Satan in a fallen world and thus our strength to stand resides in our ability to be united with one another it's so important that we not allow satan to get us against other christians against other sects well this is our way you know because all that does is make us weaker there's strength when we're together and we're to be together with our brothers and sisters We're to stand as Christians together and not be polarized. But we're also to stand as Christians with those that are oppressed in a fallen world. We've been given the cause of Christ. He came to set at liberty them that are bound. And it's important not only that we stand together, but that we also recognize where there's inequality, and as his representatives, that we stand with those that are oppressed whether it be those that are racially oppressed or because of gender or because of their position in life on the poverty scale, whatever it might be, we're to stand with them and not allow them to just be taken out. That's what Jesus did. He stood with the poor and the weak and those that were on the margins. So oppression can and should be resisted. But Solomon closes out the chapter by giving us the sadder, I guess, of the two observations, and that is this, is that although oppression can and should be resisted, Oppression and injustice in the realms of men cannot be removed under the sun. It cannot be removed. Notice in verse 13, he gives us a hypothetical situation. He says, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no longer be admonished. For out of prison, he that is the poor and wise child, he comes to reign. He comes to power. Whereas also, he that is born in his kingdom becomes poor. He can't stop the poverty. He says, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that will stand up in his place, that there is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. That is the wise poor child that became a king. And he says, surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. You say, what in the world is Solomon talking about? He's making a point by painting a picture with words. He gives us this analogy or this parable, if you would, this hypothetical story that sounds a whole lot like Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? This kind of nobody from the young man of a small tribe there in Israel. And he kind of becomes a prisoner. Remember Joseph in the prison? And out of prison, this poor youth comes into a place of prominence and power. And although this poor youth, who now has become the king, though he has the ability to stop oppression during his lifetime, he can't stop poverty because there's always going to be the poor. Even Jesus said, The poor you always have with you. But he can, listen, and this is the point. He can, this poor, wise youth that comes to rule, he can, for his lifetime, stop oppression. Because he can use his political arm to do what's right, and he can stop the oppression and injustice that happens among men. But here's the problem. Is that though during his lifetime, many are set free and they enjoy that freedom someday that child is going to die and a second child is going to be raised up in his place who's not going to have the same moral strength or the same political savvy and power as the first one and oppression is going to come up again like a cancer and eventually no one's even going to remember that the first king had come. A few generations will pass. His name will disappear in the chronicles of history and oppression in an oppressive world, will continue. We'll say, well, that's a sad ending to Solomon's assessment of society. It's not. And here's why. Because I don't know if Solomon realized it or not when he wrote it, but he tucked the answer right into the chapter. He put the solution in where the solution lies right in the words that he wrote. Notice again what it says in verse 13 and 14 and pay attention to it listen to what the spirit of god is whispering behind the words of solomon's observation behind solomon's hypothetical situation he says better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no longer be admonished do you see that there are two people in that verse two characters there's an old and foolish king who has no more hope there's an old and foolish tyrant that is so crystallized and solidified in his oppressive ways that he can no longer be reformed that those under his control and under his authority are going to feel the weight of tyranny and oppression for all of their existence because this old foolish king cannot be changed he's a tyrant But there's a second character. There's a poor, wise child who for some reason is in prison, but he comes out of prison in order to reign. Now, I don't know if you're beginning to see the picture, but this world is run by the prince of darkness, an old, foolish king who cannot be admonished, For whom there is no hope, and those under his rule will always be oppressed. But he's not the final authority. Because there's a child who came. Because there's a child who also was a prisoner. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 53. That great passage that talks about Jesus as the Messiah when he would come. Notice what it says concerning Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 7. It says that he was oppressed, that he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought forth as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Listen to verse 8. For he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Why? Why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. He was wise. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied by his knowledge or by knowing him shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their sins, their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide for him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Listen, do you hear it? There's a poor, wise child who is taken out of the prison, who rules over and takes the place of the old, foolish, tyrannical king of oppression. And under his reign and under his rulership, there's freedom. There's the removal of the arm of oppression as long as that king lives. I got good news for you. He can't die. And those that are under the rule of that poor wise child who was taken from the prison in order to bear the sins of many, he invites whosoever will to come to him that the yoke of bondage might be removed from them, that they might learn of him in his meekness and his lowliness, and that they might find rest and freedom from their soul. See, in Jesus, sins are forgiven because of what he did on the cross, not because of what we can do for him. And when Jesus takes the sin of a person's life upon himself, innocence that was once stolen is now restored. And the guilt of sin is moved away, and thus the bondage that guilt brings no longer has its sting. When Jesus comes into a life... Not only does innocence become restored, but he restores vision. Because the Spirit of God comes into the redeemed, and the spiritual eyes are opened, and we're now able to see that there's more than just what this world is. And that there's an existence that's eternal, and a kingdom that's eternal, and therefore there's a purpose for my life that exceeds that which this world alone can give. My vision is restored. He also grants freedom to the life. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 31? He said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. free. And he said in verse 36 that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And even the person who is a servant or a slave in Christ, that person becomes free. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says that whoever is even a slave becomes the Lord's freeman. Because once you've been set free by the Son, even if you're oppressed in the things of the world, you're free from the sting of that oppression, even if you're not free from the circumstances. Because you know who you are, and you know why you exist, and you know who's the Lord over your life. And in that lordship of Christ, there's freedom for the soul. By removing our sin, Jesus also beautifies our vulnerability. This is huge. It means that the very weakness that caused us to be oppressed in the first place becomes our strength. You say, I'm oppressed because I'm poor. God takes that poorness and he says, in your weakness, I am strong. And he makes it the strength of our life. I'm oppressed because I'm uneducated and those that know more than me are constantly dominating me. He takes the weakness of our intellectual inabilities and he elevates us by his spirit in spite of what we lack and the very thing that was our weakness in the world becomes our strength in his kingdom. You ever heard Pastor Bobby's testimony that he couldn't read until after high school? I mean, think about that. I mean, in the United States of America, someone made it through high school without being able to read. Now, I would call that a disadvantage and a weakness. I remember one day just sitting out and just listening to Pastor Bobby and and knowing him the way that I do. And and, and there's an amazing thing that that hit me, and I realized as I was watching, is that here's a guy whose weakness is that he couldn't read (laughs) until after high school. And yet, if you know the man, there's not a person on the planet that can read a human being with greater clarity and greater accuracy than Pastor Bobby. I have seen him watch a person walk in the church for the first time and from 50 yards away say, you're a pastor, aren't you? And the person's like, whoa. They're visiting from California for the first time, doesn't know who he is. He just, he just has this ability to see and read. and It's amazing. The weakness that we possess and the natural becomes the strength that God anoints to bring us out. And thus, Jesus beautifies our weakness. And he frees our hand. Did you catch it in verse 6? In verse 6, he says that, that there's one man who's got one handful with quietness. He, he's not grinding away with two hands. He's not resigned with Folding hands, I'm not quit, I don't do nothing in this life. But there is a man, there is a woman who has been set free in such a way that they are content with what they've been given both to do and possess, and they have one hand free with which they can do something else. See, one hand is used in my labor, one hand is used in my service, one hand is used in my provision for my family, my duties. But the other hand is free. It's not consumed by the plague of this life and of this world. And thus, with that hand, I can serve someone else. With that hand, I can lift up someone else that might need. With that hand, I can give. With that hand, I can praise and my life can be given to him. Only Jesus can produce that in a life. You say, how do I know this freedom? How do I know the freedom that only Jesus gives? It's very simple. It's not a lot of hoops. But the Bible says that they that trust in him will not be ashamed. And freedom comes as easy as you deciding in your heart, and it's a decision that you make in your heart, that you want to put your trust in Jesus as the one who sets you free. The poor wise child who was taken from prison, To bear your sins and to offer forgiveness, innocence, and restoration. How do I do it? First of all, I trust Him. I trust Jesus as my Lord. Sorry, first I trust Him as my Savior. I trust Him as my Savior, the one who took my place and traded with me who bled out and died so that my sins could be completely forgiven. And I put my trust in him, not in myself, to be the one who forgives me of all the sins that I've committed in my life. So I trust him to be the savior of my life. I trust him secondarily to be my Lord. To be my Lord means that he's my master. And you say, wait a minute, aren't we talking about freedom? Yeah, we are talking about freedom. Because when I bow my knee before the Lord Jesus and I make him the Lord and master of my life, what that does is it sets me free from being a servant to everything else. And so when I make him my Lord, then I'm subject to who he says I am and what he wants me to do and that therefore sets me free from being a slave to everything that I had been serving my entire life. So I trust him, not just as my Savior who forgives me, but as my Lord who controls me. And then thirdly, I trust him as my keeper. Or you could use the word shepherd. Meaning that I'm trusting him, that he's going to lead my life, and he's going to keep me in a place of freedom that I'm not going to be forever bound up, or I'm not going to be constantly being entangled again in the things of this world that bring me under oppressive slavery, but that he's going to keep me in absolute freedom in and of himself. I invite you to stand with me as we close. And tonight I just want to pray for you, and maybe you're here, and maybe you're a Christian, you're born again, you're redeemed, you're saved. But maybe by degrees, your vision maybe has dulled a little bit. Your hands have slowly, maybe incrementally been brought to where two hands are maybe just a little bit too full. And you find yourself maybe here as a believer tonight in a place where you say, I'm not as free as I'm called to be. And I've been deceived by the cares of this life to a point where I've been so consumed That, you know what, I'm saved, but I'm not free. And tonight, maybe I just want to pray for you. And maybe you just want to lift up your hand and you say, Lord, just one hand I want free. I want one hand free, Lord. I see hands. Praise the Lord. Father, I just pray for those tonight that recognize, Lord, the need to be set free by you and kept free by you. Lord, I feel it myself from time to time that the thorns and the cares of this life can rise up around me. And I can be choked out, Lord, consumed and blinded to my true purpose and my eternity. And I pray tonight, Jesus, for all of us here that we find ourselves in that place, that again we would get our eyes upon the shepherd and bishop of our souls, and that we would sense and feel your freedom in us again. Lord, I pray that the hand that stretched to heaven by faith would be seen by you, and that, Lord, you would once again bring the liberation of the children of God. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And Lord, we desire your freedom even in the midst of human oppression. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ personally. Maybe you've never come to that place of faith where you've trusted Jesus to be the one who forgives your sin. And because of that, you're still under the chain of guilt and is controlling your life. Because you don't know Jesus Christ personally. The oppression of this world is so heavy upon you that you can relate to Solomon when he says, better are the dead that are dead than to be alive or the stillborn than those that have even seen this life. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you haven't been there yet, the day will come when you will be because the king of oppression is way too strong for you to resist the prince of life. If you don't know Jesus here personally tonight, and you say, tonight, I want to make him my Lord. I want to trust him as my Savior, the one who forgives my sins. I want to trust him as my Lord, the one who sets me free from every other slavery. And I want to trust him as my keeper. If you want to receive Jesus Christ tonight, and the forgiveness of your sins, and the new life that he gives, I'd invite you to maybe just raise your hand right now. All at once, just raise your hand and say, I want to, I see hands, I see a few going up around the room. Let's pray a prayer right now, and we're all gonna pray it. Even if you've prayed the prayer of salvation before, I want you to pray it so that those that are praying it for the first time don't feel like they're praying alone. But let's pray together. Pray this prayer with me Lord Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again. I believe you're the Lord of all. And I ask you to save me, to forgive me of my sins, to remove the yoke of guilt. make me yours that you would fill me with yourself that you would make me your servant that you would save me I trust in you from this day forward I want to follow you I want to serve you I want to live for you hear my prayer in Jesus name Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time tonight, I want you to know that the Bible says that all they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that not one will be cast out. He heard you, he receives you, and he's going to fill you. And I just encourage you, if that's you, talk to me after, talk to maybe Pastor Bobby, I see him in the back, someone else who's here. We want to just give you a Bible and encourage you. For the rest of you, would you go in peace? Would you walk in his freedom? Would you enjoy his light? In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.